Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Officer, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. So I have on with me today my friend Brandon, and I'm so excited that he's here. And I, I'll actually probably just call him Brash because that's what I know him by. I want to talk to you a little bit about a lot of things, but specifically I want to get into who you are and, and why you're on here with me. So you were first a cop, and then now you are a practicing attorney. Talk to me a little bit about becoming a cop, why you decided to do that, and then why you decided to move away and start practicing law. So I made the decision to uh, become a police officer uh, a short time after I graduated from high school. I went to the police academy uh, when I was 20, uh, became a police officer at the age of 21, and uh, did that for uh, about 10 years. Uh, And I, uh, unfortunately, uh, sustained a uh, line of duty uh, injury uh, that, that pretty much made it impossible for me to continue in that line of work, given the physical nature uh, of the uh, the job at that time. Uh, so that's when I made the decision to uh, go to law school, uh, something that I had kicked around in my mind um, over the years. And uh, so finally, the opportunity presented itself, and uh, you know, out of something uh, that was really an unfortunate situation, uh, something uh, positive was born. So uh, that's how I got to where I am today. Okay, and what kind of law do you practice now, specifically? I'm a I'm a civil litigator. Uh, okay. So I I practice in uh, both state and federal court. Um, the majority of, of my work is actual uh, courtroom litigation, um, and I do uh, focus on uh, constitutional issues and and uh, the federal courts. Cool. So I think that's why I felt like it was a good idea to bring you on, because obviously I am not an attorney. I know just enough. I mean, I know the Constitution. That's about it. And that just makes me dangerous enough to think that I can go do whatever I damn well please. But um, You're not with alone. that being – do what? You're not alone. There, there, are, <laughs> there are many out there uh, who, who know just, just enough to be dangerous as well. So. <laughs> um, so that segues perfectly into what I wanted to talk to you about tonight. So let's talk about, like, local issues, specifically in Pennsylvania because that's where you're at local issues with the shutdowns and I want to talk about specifically and this is just because I think Tom Wolf is an idiot but so he came out and he did this press conference or no I'm sorry it was like a Twitter tirade where he was telling people you know essentially like we're going to hunt you down and take your licenses away from you if you disobey my order so I saw a, a a retweet comment from your attorney general, Josh Shapiro, and he defended the executive orders as being, quote, constitutional based on being reasonably tailored to the nature of the emergency. My question is, who gets to determine the reasonably tailored nature of the emergency? Because 
if I'm not mistaken, 70% of the deaths in your state at this point have taken place in nursing homes. Is that correct? That That is correct, uh, or thereabouts. I, I don't know the exact statistics, uh, but I, I know those numbers uh, originally started off at around 60%, 64%. Um, and, and the last I heard, uh, they were in, in, in the ballpark of 70%, yes. Okay. So how do you hold down, which I know now, you know, whenever we first started talking about doing this, your whole state was still locked down. I know he's opened some counties up. I think the last I checked, it was like 12 counties are open right now. Maybe there's more than that as of today. Um, but the, you guys are still in this. He did it very differently. I'm in Indiana. So in our state, the whole state opened up the exact same way in a phase. In your state, it's like counties, and then they're opening up in like a color code. How does he determine, you know, one county over the other based off of the number of deaths in a nursing home? Like, I just don't understand how, how you do that reasonably tailored and how that's constitutional. So... To, to, to answer your question uh, about who gets to decide uh, what types of, of regulations or mandates uh, are reasonably tailored, uh, so there's a very specific reason uh, that Attorney General Shapiro used that, that language, that reasonably tailored language, uh, because uh, probably the two most preeminent Supreme Court cases dealing with uh, these types of matters, uh, quarantine restrictions, uh, are uh, Gibbons v. Ogden, uh, which most people have, have probably heard of. That's a, an 1824 case, I believe. Um, and then uh, there was a case uh, in, in 1905, uh, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, uh, where the Supreme Court analyzed some of the same issues. Uh, and, and just to I'm so sorry. Hang on one second, Brandon. Oh, no, you're my, fine. Can you hear my son screaming? I can. Okay. I, I'm so you, sorry. You might hear a dog barking, too. So I know. That's the easy. one of three things that I know about you. I know that you love bourbon, <laughs> I know you love bacon, and I know you love dogs. That's the, that's the three important things that's, that I know that's about. That's me in a nutshell. So. <laughs> okay. Please continue. I'm so sorry. That's quite all right. So the reason Attorney General Shapiro used that reasonably tailored language is because that's the language that the Supreme Court has used uh, time and time again, uh, both in, in Gibbons v. Ogden and Jacobson v. Massachusetts. Uh, and, and in Gibbons, the Supreme Court said that um, pursuant to the Tenth Amendment, the states essentially have unfettered police powers. Uh, those are delegated to the states and the federal government really can't have any involvement in, in, the, in the police power. The federal government uh, really doesn't have uh, any police power from a, a constitutional standpoint. Now, obviously, there have been agencies created, the FBI, uh, the DEA, ATF, uh, that, that does give the federal government some uh, law enforcement, but but the vast majority of, of law enforcement police powers are reserved by the states. Um, and what, what President Trump has done 
um, is he's decided to uh, take the constitutional approach um, and stick to federalism. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he's unhappy with a lot of what's going on around the country, uh, specifically in blue states, uh, but he's, uh, for all intents and purposes, abiding by the letter and the spirit of the Constitution uh, in allowing uh, the state governors to, to run their states. So the reasonably tailored uh, standard is, and, and Gibbons, the Supreme Court says the state does have this police power and they are able to, to, to quarantine people. Uh, they didn't really put any limits on it. So in, in 1905 in Jacobson, the Supreme Court uh, affirmed the, the underlying premise that uh, the, the states do have this, this police power, but uh, the Supreme Court put some limitations on, on those powers. Um, so it's, it isn't simply the state can do whatever it wants to its residents, uh, notwithstanding any other constitutional provisions uh, under their police powers. Um, and, and what the Supreme Court said uh, in Jacobson uh, was something to the effect that um, all laws should receive sensible construction or interpretation. So the courts aren't going to override uh, a state's police powers or their exercise of their police powers. But if there's some egregious um, disparity in treatment uh, between individuals, uh, that, that the courts are competent to step in um, and uh, prevent some gross injustice. So, uh, what, what the Supreme Court essentially said in Jacobson was that, yes, the state can order quarantines. However, they have to be reasonably tailored to address a very specific issue, uh, a pandemic, I believe, in, in Jacobson, the, the, the issue was smallpox. Um, and uh, mandatory uh, vaccination law in Massachusetts. So uh, Gibbons v. Ogden essentially said that the states can order uh, their residents uh, in, into quarantine, and Jacobson later said that, uh, yes, they can, but uh, their ability to do so isn't unlimited. So do you think that in this pandemic that – possibly precedents will be set in some of these cases to say, yes, you can set these limits, but you can't do it indefinitely. I mean, you have governors that just keep pushing and pushing and pushing these orders with really, in my opinion, little to no proof that they're necessary or that they so have I to. Does that make sense? It does. And, and I think, to answer your question, initially, no one knew what we were dealing with. Um, I, I don't even know that the CDC knew what we were dealing with. And I think in cases like that, um, courts are going to show some degree of deference to uh, state governors in implementing these types of emergency orders and, and stay-at-home uh, orders. 
So I think early on, and I know what we saw in Pennsylvania, was that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, pretty much shot down uh, any petitioner uh, who, who came before the court with, with some sort of complaint uh, about Governor Wolf's mandates. Uh, I don't know if, if siding with Governor Wolf was political or whether this, this virus uh, was just so new and, and unknown that you know, the courts decided to err on the side of caution and, and allow uh, the governor to maybe overstep in, into areas that, that they typically wouldn't absent uh, a situation like this. But I think we've gotten to a point now where this has become patently political. Uh, look at the states with the most draconian restrictions. Look at the states who have restored freedom and liberty to their residents. And to a state, you're going to see the ones with the restrictions are blue states. The ones that have restored liberty and freedoms are red states. So it's factually, you can say that this is a political issue. This is a partisan issue. Uh, lockdown measures, uh, restricting liberties, uh, making people stay at home, uh, limiting church services, limiting people's ability to buy firearms. Uh, and I think as this drags on longer and longer, the courts are going to shift from a cautious approach uh, in showing deference to the governors to uh, almost a, a burden-shifting scenario where up until now, the burden was on a petitioner uh, or a plaintiff to show uh, that an order or restriction was unconstitutional. Now I think the courts are going to be demanding uh, some sort of empirical evidence from the government, uh, the governor, uh, state officials, uh, to justify uh, these continued lockdown measures. That brings me to my next question for you. So I'm glad that you said where the burden of proof is going to lie, because I want to talk a little bit about, I know I mentioned it briefly in the beginning, but the nursing home policies in many of these states, it's not just Pennsylvania, but I can speak specifically to Pennsylvania because I did a little bit of research on this. I want to talk about, is it Levine, Levine, Levin? How do you say her name? Levine, I believe. Levine. Okay. So she is the one who advised the governor to put the mandate in that if a patient who was in a nursing home came to be found positive with COVID-19 but did not need additional hospitalization, they were to be reintroduced to the general population of the nursing home. Is that correct? To my knowledge, yes. Okay. And so where does that liability – and didn't she, if I'm not mistaken, she removed her mother from the nursing home while instituting these policies to save her mother, correct? That is correct. Okay. So 
where will the burden of proof be in that situation if my my grandmother or my mother passed away in one of these situations in one of these nursing homes where covid patients were reintroduced would the burden of proof that it was necessary to put those patients back in the nursing homes be on the state or is it going to be on me to prove that the state didn't have to put my mom back in there does that make sense it it does but it leads us to a a, a rather convoluted uh, legal uh, analysis uh, because any plaintiff bringing a claim um, in the nature of, of what you just described uh, is going to have to overcome sovereign immunity. Um, in, in Pennsylvania, as with any other state, we have a sovereign immunity statute uh, that, that gives any governmental agency uh, absolute immunity uh, from any type of negligence claim. Uh, there are enumerated exceptions to the, the sovereign immunity statute. So there are very specific grounds on which that immunity can be pierced and, and, a, and a plaintiff can pursue, proceed with a negligence suit. Uh, so this isn't, it won't be as simple as just walking to the courthouse and filing the complaint and uh, going to trial. Uh, the uh, the state is going to object uh, on on immunity grounds, uh, I would assume, and uh, it, I think in the majority of cases the courts will probably side with the state. Uh, so I don't know that any of these cases will actually make it uh, to to a jury or to a trial. Uh, when, if and when a case does. The burden will be, as it always is, on, on the plaintiff, the person bringing the claim. Uh, in a civil realm, the, the, the burden is on the plaintiff. In, in, in the criminal realm, uh, the, the burden is on, on the state or the prosecution. Uh, so uh, the burden will be on the plaintiff to show, to establish negligence, all of the elements of negligence, uh, in addition to overcoming sovereign immunity. Uh, so it, it I feel be, like that would be really hard that. when HIPAA comes into play because you, I mean, these places can't disclose medical information or anything like that. So I feel like that burden of proof, you're you're just kind of screwed at that point. Like you're not going to be able well, to prove your. If no, if if you're the plaintiff, you you can absolutely uh, through through a subpoena uh, you, or through discovery, you you can get medical records. Uh, if you're bringing the suit uh, on behalf of a de deceased family member, relative, uh, we, we do it every day. Uh, you know, in, in civil litigation, uh, we get medical records and, and we use them at trial. So uh, but there wouldn't be any, any issue there. I mean, a nursing home couldn't say, uh, you're suing us and you're suing the governor or you're just suing the governor. Uh, Sorry, but because of HIPAA, we can't give you any of the medical records that you need to establish your case. Um, that that would not be an issue. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> that's good to know. Um, okay, so 
I, I want to move quick, and I hate to do this because I could talk about each of these subjects for a really long time, but I know we're on a time constraint, so I want to make sure that I at least touch on everything. I want to ask you about mask usage. So <clears throat> there's been so much information from the beginning of this whole fiasco. First, I mean, I can remember watching the Surgeon General come on television and tell me how useless a mask was and how it was so useless that it was even almost dangerous because it forces you to continue to touch your face more frequently, which is how the virus is spread, and that we should not be wearing masks. And then it was like, well, actually, we just didn't want you buying all the masks because our medical people needed them. So now you need a mask. You you need a mask to go out in public and not from the Surgeon General, but like from our governors and from businesses and all of that stuff. So I want to talk about forced mask usage. So public sector versus private sector. Public sector, can a governor or a mayor or an elected official come out with one of these executive orders and say, you must wear a mask in public or be fined? Is that, can they do that? And then the second, go ahead. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, and on the civil side, can private businesses say you're not allowed to come onto our premises unless you have a mask on? So I think we need to, when we're analyzing any of these issues, we need to understand that that the actions that these governors are taking are, um, a governor cannot, a governor is the chief executive of of the state. Uh, A a governor cannot legislate. That's its separation of powers 101. Uh, however, states have given their governors, pursuant to statute, uh, certain powers, uh, emergency powers, that, that they can invoke. Um, in, in Pennsylvania, the way the statute's written, and, and there, there's been some litigation over this, in cases of natural disaster or man-made disaster, uh, natural disaster being a tornado or, or a blizzard. Uh, man-made being maybe a, a, an explosion at a gas uh, uh, gas well facility. Uh, so in those cases, the governor has some extraordinary powers that that he does not enjoy typically. Uh, he he's able to do things that he would in no way be permitted to do absent the emergency. Uh, I, I think what a lot of democratic governors have done uh, is seize this opportunity uh, to to exploit uh, their their emergency powers for as long as they possibly can. Uh, I know Governor Wolf here in Pennsylvania uh, certainly uh, fits the bill. So to answer your question from a, a government standpoint, can the governor issue this mandate, I believe, pursuant to our state statute, yes. That being said, I don't know how long the courts will allow or the state legislature will allow uh, these emergency powers to be used when it it seems we're we're certainly at the tail end of this. We know more now than we did two months ago. Uh, so uh, 
thing in, in Pennsylvania was it wasn't actually Governor Wolf who issued <clears throat> the mask mandate. It was Secretary Levine. And that, to me, is, is almost unheard of, uh, having a, a, an unelected political appointee giving that person the awesome power to issue orders with the force of law. Uh, you know, I would have, I wouldn't have agreed with it anymore, but I would have felt more comfortable if Secretary Levine would have advised Governor Wolf to do this and Governor Wolf issued the order. But to my knowledge, Governor Wolf has allowed Secretary Levine to issue, personally issue several orders uh, during the past two months. And, and to me, that's just, uh, it, it struck me as, as extremely bizarre. Um, so that's insane. I, I didn't even know that. Do I think the government generally can implement if, if they're invoking their emergency powers because of a, a pandemic, I believe that they, they can, they do have that authority initially. I don't think they can, can make it a blanket policy with no exceptions, uh, which leads me to the, the second part of, of your question. Uh, private companies. Um, there have been several uh, private companies in in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania who are refusing to recognize the uh, exception, uh, the medical exception uh, to the mask mandate. Uh, and they have admitted openly that this is not pursuant to the secretary's order that it was a it is a corporate policy and it was made at the upper level management uh, part of, of the company so uh, one of those is giant eagle our our local grocery uh, chain the, the largest one in in the Pittsburgh area they have on the record stated, this is a corporate policy. It is, we're not enforcing the, the state's order. Uh, do I think they have the, a private company has the ability to do this? I do. I think private companies have more latitude to do what they want generally than the government does. However, then they're running afoul of certain laws, uh, namely the Americans with Disabilities Act. So saying we're not going to permit you into the store without a mask, even though the state's order provides an exception for people who can't wear masks, uh, to me is tantamount to saying we're, we're closing our handicap ramps to, into the store uh, during this pandemic because we're afraid someone in a wheelchair is more susceptible to catching the virus. I, just to throw out a very uh, sure, yeah, I get wall example. Um, so, can a corporation do whatever it pleases? 
It can't, but it's also bound by laws such as the Americans with Disabilities Act. And in, in the case of, of our local grocery chain and, and some other stores who have taken it upon themselves to uh, decide what's in the best interest of their customers uh, and what they'll allow and what they won't, um, I, I think they're they're opening themselves to liability. I've had clients, business clients, ask me uh, what they should do uh, with respect to to the mask mandate, and and my advice to them is typically, uh, you know, if somebody comes into your business without a mask, make sure you have some on hand. Offer them a mask. Uh, if they tell you that they can't wear one because of a medical condition, you've complied with the law, you've complied with the order, and there are no repercussions for that. Uh, however, if you decide to make it a company policy that we're not letting anyone in without a mask, no exceptions, then you are opening yourself to liability. Uh, so I think the former option is, is much safer than the latter. Uh, simply complying with the letter of Secretary Levine's order, offering customers masks. If they tell you that they can't wear one because of a medical condition, you've done your due diligence, you've complied with, with the, the order, um, and you're safe. Uh, a lot of businesses are taking that approach, and I commend them. Well, I think that specifically in that situation, I here in Indiana, we don't have any issues with that. I mean, you get dirty looks if you're out without a mask, but n nobody from, quote unquote, an official aspect has ever said anything to me yet. Um, and I, I don't wear one because I wear glasses, I can't breathe, and it makes my glasses fog up. So I... Uh, I haven't had to worry about that yet, but I feel like if I lived in a state where they made me wear it, I I wouldn't appreciate that very much. Well, and it that's because it it goes against everything that it means to be an American citizen. It's the government. It's essentially, in my opinion, it's forced government speech because at this point. I haven't seen any, any solid data suggesting that the general public wearing makeshift face coverings, a bandana tied loosely around their, their face, uh, a t-shirt pulled up over their nose, uh, is, is making anyone safer. In fact, I think it's having the, the opposite effect, uh, as you alluded to earlier. So, uh, you know, I see people in parking lots, uh, construction workers, you know, just covered with dirt and mud, reaching into their pocket, pulling out a crumpled piece of fabric. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't take – you don't have to have a Ph.D. to realize that they're probably doing more harm than good in most cases. Yes. Um, the other thing that I wanted to touch on real quick, Pennsylvania-specific – is that your governor decided to release inmates. And he, uh, uh, 
and I need a little bit of clarification on this because he's on April 10th, he signed an executive order to release 1,800 inmates. I guess that was based off of time served and the type of thing that they were in jail for. Is that correct? They were almost out or close to being out, so they fit a certain criteria. So that's why that number was so specific. Is that right? We we were told, we, the residents of Pennsylvania, and, and it happened in, in my county as well, Allegheny County, um, we were told that, that the individuals being released were low-risk, nonviolent offenders uh, you know, who were maybe serving a very short sentence, 90 days, uh, something like that. So that that's the official story. But given the Wolf administration's handling of this entire situation and the criteria that that they use uh, to implement policies to restrict our freedoms are are just so amorphous uh, that they say these are low risk offenders, uh, but I don't necessarily believe that. <laughs> Says the former police officer, now attorney. Um, <laughs> I uh, I was reading quotes like that. I guess Maria Finn, she's a spokeswoman for the DOC. She said, so in his order, he said to release 1,800 inmates. She came out and said, the reprieves combined with other measures have allowed the agency to reduce the population in prisons and community correction centers. Since March 1st, the department has seen a total reduction of more than 1,950 people. And so it made me wonder, what are these quote-unquote other measures that were taken into consideration to allow these people to be released if they did did not fit into that specific criteria? So that I guess that kind of confirms that you don't necessarily believe <laughs> that they followed through with that criteria because it sounds like there were other things that they permitted in this release. And I think well, the kicker was – it said, besides accounting for the safety of the community, the DOC is considering housing, food, and health care options before letting the inmates out. And all I could think to myself was, I, I wonder how your state feels about you caring more about your inmates as you release them than you do about the people who are in nursing homes in your state. And that is absolute fact. Uh, in, in New York, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, that is true in all of those states. And I think if, if you look at this situation from a purely political standpoint, which these governors have made it a purely political issue, uh, you can see the not so hidden agenda. Uh, for example, in, in Pennsylvania, uh, Governor Wolf just announced yesterday that part of his recovery plan, as he calls it, uh, is to increase the minimum wage to $12 with a goal of eventually getting to 15 Okay, that was one of his, his goals well before anyone had even heard of COVID-19. Uh, to uh, um, uh, implement uh, policies for student loan forgiveness and to uh, require, quote, hazardous duty pay for frontline workers 
during uh, pandemics or emergencies like this. So what any of these things have to do with recovery, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, the, the few businesses that have made somehow managed to survive uh, through this are now going to be faced with having to pay employees, in some cases, a little less than twice as much as they were paying them before this. Uh, that will surely sink the, the majority of the remaining businesses, uh, that in and of itself. So it's not very hard to see the, the hidden agenda. Uh, I firmly believe, I'm, I by no means a conspiracy theorist, but I firmly believe that, uh, you know, Democrats, both at the federal and state level, uh, saw an opportunity, uh, and they became opportunists. Uh, well, Nancy, we can use this to our advantage. Yeah, didn't Nancy Pelosi, wasn't she actually quoted saying this is a perfect opportunity for us to reform, you know, the way that we want the country to look? It's something along that She's not the only but. one. I've seen countless politicians, including Governor Wolf. I don't know if the website's changed since then, but at one point, there was a, a, a vision statement on on Governor Wolf's website, on the state website, uh, saying, you know, we have an opportunity to, it was essentially Barack Obama's fundamentally transformed uh, language, uh, but Pennsylvania rather than the, the United States. So I think anything that's happened in the last month, uh, to me, uh, seems like it's been politically motivated, purely politically motivated. It's just sad. It, it's so disappointing to see that. And then on top of all of this that's going on, you have all of the FISA abuse, the General Flynn situation on a federal level. You have so much bureaucracy influence in our country and I it's so hard for me to to sit and watch officials that we elected that are supposed to represent us do not represent us at all they represent special interests and then a lot of the you think about a clock and, and you can see the hands moving but you don't see gears moving in the back and what you don't realize is that much of what goes on in our government is actually a whole bunch of people we don't even know. We didn't vote for them. We have nothing to do with them. And they're they're the ones that are, are turning the hands. And it's so frustrating. Um, so the, the, the two things that I, I really want people to focus on when, when this is all over someday um, is reforming the way we delegate emergency powers to executive branch officials. Uh, it's, it's very dangerous. We allowed it to happen. Uh, there's, there's been complacency in, in this country for years now. Uh, people just, there's no involvement. They don't care uh, what's going on until something impacts them directly. And, and now we're in a situation where we're really seeing how dangerous these emergency powers can be. Uh, the other 
issue that I would really like people to focus on when, when we get through this is the bureaucracy, uh, unelected officials um, like uh, Vindman, uh, like Fiona Hill, uh, who the Democrats are, are essentially making into to, to some sort of demigod. Um, they are bureaucrats. They are appointed by someone. They are not elected. Uh, while their input is, is certainly valuable, I'm sure, they would have never been placed in that position, uh, they don't get to call the shots. And, and to me, that was one of the most frustrating things uh, to watch during uh, the, the impeachment hearings uh, and the lead-up to the impeachment hearings was this, this notion that unelected bureaucrats, just because they've been in a position for 10 or 20 years, should set policy rather than the person that the people of the United States elected to set policy. It, it, it just, it's so frustrating. And it just goes to show our collective lack of uh, civic knowledge. Uh, about the way this government is supposed to operate. Well, that I, knowledge of government has been so evident because I just watched Nancy Pelosi on C-SPAN today harp on the president about, you need to get a testing strategy, you need to get a testing strategy. And all I could keep thinking to myself was, you are an elected member of Congress. Do you not understand the separations of powers? Donald Trump cannot dictate testing policy in let's say California, because you would throw a fit. So it, it, it's mind boggling to me, the message that's delivered and the number of people who don't understand separation of powers, executive branch versus judicial versus legislative. It's, it's mind blowing to me. So I agree with and, you. I think. And it's, it's not that difficult. The, the United States constitution is the shortest written constitution in the world. And it's it not like it's not like it's in a whole other language. You can you can read it and understand Correct. exactly what they're saying. Correct. And there are so many, so many sources of information, legitimate sources of information out there. Uh, if people would take the time but we've we've gotten so lazy. We want to get our news in two hundred and eighty characters. Uh, we're to the point where we won't even click on a link to an article because, my God, spending five minutes reading something, that's, that's just insane. <laughs> I know, in our 45-minute podcast that we just recorded, <laughs> nobody's going to listen to. Uh, well, okay, so. Will because, you know, we'll, we're, obviously we need entertainment. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I wanted to get to FISA abuse and General Flynn. I don't have time to do that because I know that you've got a case that you've got to prepare for. I do want to ask you one really quick question about General Flynn, sure. though, just because it's so prevalent right now. So the Department of Justice has asked Judge Sullivan to – they or the State Department has completely dropped charges, correct? Correct. Okay. So can you explain to me how a judge can continue to try a case where there are no charges? That's Part one of question. Part two is a lot of people argue they're like, well, he pled guilty. He pled guilty. So 
can you just touch briefly on what a coerced guilty plea is versus a voluntary knowing and understanding plea? The research that I did, it brought up Brady versus Maryland, which is like suppression by prosecution of evidence favorable to an accused. But I don't I don't know if I understand that perfectly. So I'd love if you could touch on that just a little bit. So I, I will admit I, I haven't been following the situation with Judge Sullivan closely. Yeah, and I'm sorry. Yeah, I totally I'm sprung aware. it on you because I didn't even yeah, include no, no, it in no, what no. you and I talked right. about. I'm I'm aware of the fact that uh, he uh, had appointed someone uh, to act on, on behalf of the government um, to uh, – I guess he wants both sides to sort of argue the merits of, um, and in a federal criminal context, I believe once, even though charges are filed, once the case actually goes to trial or uh, is is given to the judge uh, for some sort of uh, disposition, uh, I, I don't believe it's as simple as, as just, you know, a judge still has to officially uh, dismiss the case. Uh, the, the prosecution simply saying, uh, we changed our mind. Uh, that just doesn't fly once you get to that point. Uh, and, and the Flynn case was so far along. Um, so Brady, you often hear the term Brady material. Uh, that refers to uh, materials that the, the prosecution has to disclose uh, during discovery uh, in a criminal case, uh, exculpatory evidence. Um, and, and there was plenty of, of Brady material, i.e. exculpatory evidence, uh, in, in the Flynn case. Uh, I don't think we as the general public have seen the, the tip of the iceberg at this point uh, with with the, the railroad job. Um, that that's happened in, in that case. I mean, it's just, it's the most egregious thing I've ever seen. Um, and, and to be fair, and, and full disclosure, I do not practice criminal law um, at, at the federal level. I, I don't practice for, uh, criminal law at the state level either. Uh, again, no, I'm, that's I'm fair. I, I kind of just wanted your uh, take on it a little bit to kind of. I think from from the limited knowledge I have of, what's happened in the last three weeks, um, you know, it appears to me, and, and you know, judges, I mean, the, really the only recourse against the judge is, is impeachment. It happens, but it's it's not a common occurrence. Uh, so, you know, the, the judiciary, especially the Supreme Court, I mean, probably the most fundamental change to our country uh, when when Donald Trump leaves office uh, will be the federal judiciary. Uh, people don't realize how important filling all of those vacant seats was and will continue to be, not for the next four years, for the next 40 years. Yeah, because those are lifetime appointments, correct? Correct. And, and again, the only recourse 
in a case where you might have a corrupt judge uh, is is impeachment. So there there is a mechanism to to remove a, a federal judge, but uh, you you don't see it. It's very very rare. Um, and absent that, they're lifetime appointments. So death or retirement are the only two ways uh, that a federal judge is, is ever going to, to step down from the bench. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw Lindsey Graham say today, if you're over 60 and you're feeling like you want to go ahead and retire, I got an opportunity to fill those seats before he leaves office. It's very oh, funny. Lindsay, Lindsay, I just Good old Lindsay. All right, sir. I will let you go. Thank you so much, Brandon. I appreciate you so much. I will pay you in bourbon (laughs) and keep you on retainer so that next time I will pay you in more bourbon anytime I have legal stuff that comes up so you can come on and jaw with me and we can talk about this. I really do appreciate you taking the time. It's not often that you can get an attorney to give you an hour without asking for payment. So I am going to give you bourbon. <laughs> Thank you well, so much, Brandon. Well, I appreciate you. It was my pleasure. All right. You take care of yourself. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.